with that, I'm now going to introduce him. I really believe this. I believe that Dr. Ross is one of the greatest gifts to all of modern Christendom. For many reasons, I believe this. But one of them is, is this is the smartest human being that I have ever had a conversation with, personally. <laughs> By far. I, and the staff earlier, I said, if you just rub up against him, you get about 10 more IQ points. Okay? So you'll get like seven and a half for just listening, okay? But I know that he's one of the smartest human beings on the face of the planet because he understands things that very few people in the world even can understand. Now, as great as that genius is, I think he's got an equally great genius in that he's able to take those amazingly complex things and communicate them in a way that anybody can understand them. And not just understand them, but go, wow. And not just wow, but that's beautiful. That is elegant. That is outstanding. And because he's always tying it in with God, who is the creator of all of this, because that's what it's created that way to do, you end up glorifying God, whether you know him or not. And I have to say, for that reason, I believe he ought to be in every pulpit, in every church, in the entire world, period. But I've got to tell you something. That's not the reason why I'm most passionate about his ministry. As much as I love that, as valuable as that is, as incredible as it is, the reason why I'm passionate about his ministry is because other than Lake Sam, this is the ministry that's brought more people to the Lord than anybody that I know. Because there's so many people out there that have been raised with this understanding that there's a distinction between science and scripture. And Dr. Ross coming from the word, as he will do today, demonstrates that that is the big lie that that is absolutely untrue, and that when we see what God has written before scientists ever had a clue about it, and how much it speaks directly to all of these things, you cannot help but find him. In fact, what I do, the reason why I know so many people have come to him, is because whenever I get somebody who's very interested in science, I send them to his website. There's one sitting right here. And I send them to his website. And if they will go to his website, reasons.org, if they will go there and if they will seriously look at what's there, not casually, if they will find the places that they're interested in and look at them, I've never seen anybody not come to the Lord. That is awesome. That's what we get today. So I want you to give a big Lake Sam welcome to Dr. Hughes. Well, thank you for inviting me here. It's good to be back. And I'm glad you're having this uh, seminar on marriage. And uh, I've been married for 34 years, and people ask me, what's the secret to being married that long? I said, well, I've explained to my wife that I'm an astronomer, which means I get all my data from the past, because it takes like time to travel to our telescope, <laughs> which means I'm completely ignorant of the present. Therefore, I can't be held accountable for anything that happens in the present. <laughs> so. So husbands, you might try that out and see how far you get. <laughs> Probably as far as I got. So. <laughs> but Reasons to Believe is an organization we founded 26 years ago now, 
and it's founded on the principle of developing new reasons to believe in Christ's creator, Lord, and Savior. I was a minister of evangelism full-time for 11 years in a church in Southern California, and what we discovered is it's difficult to talk to people who've never been to church about something that happened 2,000 years ago, but they will talk about something that was discovered 48 hours ago. So we use these new reasons as a bridge to the traditional reasons. And one way we do that is we publish articles on our website about brand new scientific discoveries. It's called Today's New Reason to Believe. You can subscribe for it for free and get it sent to your computer. Uh, we also make available these podcasts where we jump on a scientific discovery that is in the public press, literally within an hour or two or three after it's been announced, and kind of give you, uh, a, you know, a Christian uh, perspective on that discovery. You can subscribe for it again free at either iTunes or Reasons.org. And hey, you don't need a computer. You can get all this through our Reasons to Believe uh, app. Now, on your seats, there should have been these cards. Uh, we're making available these cards. You'll notice that each one is designed to help you get a conversation going on linking science with faith. And it's designed for lay people, so please take that with you and hope you can make advantage of it. And uh, if you fill out the little card that's attached to it, that'll get you a free subscription to our magazine, New Reasons to Believe. And if you put it in the box at the back, we will mail you at no charge a CD of my testimony of how my astronomy brought me to faith in Christ eight years before I met a Christian. But the theme today is on my latest book, just released a few weeks ago, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. But I hope you'll see that they're really not that hidden. And uh, you know, as a pastor and astronomer, I noticed that the book of Job has gotten more commentaries than any other book of the Bible. More has been written about the book of Job than any other book of the Bible. But in going through all those hundreds of commentaries, I noticed that none of them dealt with the subject of science and creation, which is a surprise to me because the book of Job has got more content on science and creation than any other book of the Bible. Moreover, I recognize that it's the oldest book of the Bible. Now you say, well, how come doesn't it show up on page one? Well, the Bible is organized as three sets of books, historical, poetic, and then you've got the prophetic. And each one is chronological. But notice that Job is the first of the poetic books. And what we notice in the book of Job is there's textual clues that it dates back to the patriarchal era. Why? Because we notice that it's the patriarchs that are doing the sacrifices, not the priests. So this must predate the priestly era. And most scholars believe that because of the references to uh, the political system there and economic system, that it dates back about five or 600 years before Moses wrote the book of Genesis which means that Job would be a foundational book for Genesis. It's a foundational book for the rest of the Bible. Now, where did it take place? Well, we have all these interesting place names already in the, in the book of Job. Uh, talks about the Chaldeans uh, running off uh, with the uh, donkeys of uh, Job. And we know where Chaldea is. He says that he lived in the, uh, the land of Uz. And uh, then we have Eliphaz coming from Taman. And uh, there we have the Garden of Eden. Keep in mind at the time of Adam and Eve, the Persian Gulf was largely dry. And it explains why the Bible talks about these four great rivers coming into one place. Skeptics often critique the Bible by saying it's impossible for these four rivers to come together. 
that are mentioned in Genesis 2. Well, they don't come together anywhere today, but they did come together at one location, the one you see up here on the map, uh, when the Persian Gulf was largely dry. So that again tells us that we're back in the days, hundreds of years before uh, Moses. Now, uh, in terms of these uh, time clues, sacrificial offerings by the family head rather than the priests, no references to political or economic events, and no references to the Hebraic culture. And uh, Taman, by the way, was famous for its very wise citizens. This is mentioned not only in the book of Job, but in Genesis and Jeremiah as well. And that kind of sets the tone uh, for the debate that was taking place. We need to appreciate that these were the five wisest men on the planet at the time. So here is Job in distress. He was a man of very high standing and respect. And people that knew him literally called upon uh, these very wise individuals. And literally, they came from hundreds of miles away to uh, offer comfort and solace and wisdom to Job uh, in his great stress. Which means that we're really having the opportunity of listening in on one of the greatest debates that's ever taken place in uh, human history. And many argue it is, in fact, the greatest debate. But of course, there's a debate behind the scene going on between God and Satan in heaven. That's, that's a background to the debate that's taking place here on earth. For that reason, I think Elihu is probably the author of the book of Job. He was the young man. I think he was taking notes because he's silent throughout the whole major portion of the debate. And finally, he comes on the scene. And that really struck me when I read the book of Job because I could remember being at the University of Toronto where every June we would bring in four of the world's leading astronomers and astrophysicists. And they would all give us lectures. But to me, the most significant point was when these four astronomers would debate one another in front of us all. That's when we all took notes. So I think Elihu would have responded in a similar way. Now, of all the books of the Bible, Job offers the most content in terms of providing evidences for the Christian faith. That's what apologetics means, giving good reasons for uh, the hope that we have within us. And it contains the most extensive creation accounts in the Bible. Some of them run six chapters long in the book of Job. It is the one book that really appeals to general revelation. This is the theme you see in Psalm 19, that God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And if we're a follower of God, we're commanded to study both books. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, I want to assure you the book of Job commands you to be a scientist. It also commands you to be a theologian. We're to study both books and to integrate the two books. And it's the book of Job that does the most extensive uh, work in pulling these two books of revelation that God gave us together. It's also the one book that outlines God's plan of salvation independent of scripture. You have Job explaining the plan of salvation through the evidences that are revealed in nature. Elihu does the same thing, although not as eloquently as Job was able to express it. It was Job, for example, appealing to what he saw in the record of nature, who declared, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see him on the last day. I will see him in my flesh with my own eyes. So it just shows you what a man who's a student of the record of nature can discern about God and God's desire to relate to us human beings. The other thing we notice in the book of Job is it really fills in the gaps. You know, I've debated a number of atheists on university campuses, 
And what I notice is how fond they are of critiquing the Genesis creation accounts for everything that it leaves out. And I explained to them that, of course, Moses left out these details, as important as they are, because Job already covered them. Job knew that the people that he was addressing had the content of the book of Job. There was no need to repeat what Job had already laid down. And Job is the one that lays down the most crucial points of creation theology. And therefore, we have to be careful of critiquing Genesis just because it leaves out important things. Incidentally, that's also true of the book of Deuteronomy. The gaps we see in the book of Deuteronomy have already been taken care of in the book of Job. Now, let me give you some examples here of uh, how uh, Job really helps us appreciate what's going on in Genesis. I'll be talking a little bit about Genesis Wednesday night. It's the most controversial uh, book of the Bible. It's the one that Christians love to fight one another over more than any other book of the Bible. Uh, but my passion as a pastor is we simply bring the book of Job into this context. It's a marvelous tool for bringing down the hostility that people express in their concerns over what Genesis says about science and creation. You know, probably the uh, biggest, uh, you know, controversy I see is where people look at Genesis 1 and the sun, moon, and stars are not mentioned to the fourth day. And there then they believe that the text is saying that the sun, moon, and stars weren't created until the fourth day. And of course, that's great fodder for the skeptics because they'll say, well, the text mentions plants on day three. What kept the plants warm if there's no sun out there to heat them up? They would have been immediately frozen. Well, if you look at the book of Job, it explains what was going on at creation day one. Notice creation day one says, let there be light. It doesn't say that God created the light. It doesn't say that God made the light. It says, let the light be. Well, Job 38, verse 9, God speaks and he says in the context of creation day one, I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. It referring to the water that covered the whole face of the earth at that time. So whereas Genesis 1 is implicit in suggesting it's not the actual creation of the light, but the appearance of the light, notice that Job 38 is explicit. The reason why it's dark is not because of the lack of the sun, moon, and stars. It's dark because God blanketed the oceans with clouds that prevented the light from coming through. So what God did in creation day one is he transformed the atmosphere to translucent. Kind of like we got today. It's overcast. You don't know where the sun is in the sky because of the clouds. And those clouds did not break until the fourth day. That's when it became transparent. As I'll explain Wednesday night, all the life that God creates before day four doesn't need to know where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky. But all the life that God creates after day four crucially needs to know the position of the sun, moon, and stars in order to reproduce at the right time of the year, uh, to feed and hibernate and migrate at the right time of the year. Now, when I debated Michael Shermer, the Skeptic Society, he ridiculed Genesis 1 for the fact that you got Genesis 1, 1 talking about God creating the universe, then you jump ahead uh, to uh, Genesis uh, 1, 2, and it's speaking about the Earth. And he says the astronomical record tells us there's a nine billion year gap between God creating the universe and the formation of the Earth. And said, why would a book like the Bible be totally silent on most of cosmic history? Well, Genesis is silent on that huge period of cosmic history, but not the book of Job. 
the book of Job is the first book in the Bible that talks about God continuously expanding the universe from the very beginning of creation where he creates space, time, matter, and energy to where the universe is now sufficiently expanded that stars, galaxies, and planets like Earth can be formed. In fact, it tells us that God alone stretches out the heavens, making the point that we should expect something miraculous in this cosmic expansion. And when I spoke last night at Mars Hill, I was making the point that it's the constants of physics that govern cosmic expansion that give us the most spectacular supernatural evidence for design, for evidence for supernatural, superintelligent design. And by the way, it's by a factor of a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion times better than what places second place in terms of the best evidence for supernatural, superintelligent design. Notice Job said it first. Notice, too, that no scientist even hinted at the idea that we live in a continuously expanding universe until the 20th century. Albert Einstein was the first to suggest uh, that we live in a continuously expanding universe. But for thousands of years, the Bible was on record, and it was uniquely on record. It was literally the only book of theology, of science, or philosophy that stated that we live in a continuously expanding universe. Today, we know Job got it right. Job uniquely predicted uh, future scientific discoveries. And incidentally, the book of Job is on record as having more evidences of accurate predictions of future scientific discoveries than any other book. That's several chapters of the book that I've uh, written on this. But I thought what was especially important about the book of Job is it expands upon the second origin of life. When you look at Genesis 1, and incidentally, when you debate atheists and talk about the origin of life, they're usually talking about the origin of the simplest life, the first life on planet Earth. But in fact, they are challenged by three separate origins of life. Creation day one, God creates life that is physical. But not until creation day five does he create the first life forms that are not only physical, but also soulish. That's a technical term that means endowed with mind, will, and emotions so that these creatures can relate to one another and nurture one another, but they're simultaneously designed to relate to human beings and to serve and please human beings, each in their own distinct way. That took place on creation day five, and on the end of creation day six, God created the one and only species that, like him, is body, soul, and spirit human beings. So three separate origins of life. And keep in mind that you have the principle of cause and effect. The greater cannot come from the lesser. And so effects must also always be lesser than their causes. So if you don't know a lot of biochemistry, if you don't know a lot of cognitive psychology or neuroscience, you can always come forth with this one. How can the living come from the non-living? How can the soulish come from the non-soulish? How can the mindful come from the mindless? How can the spiritual come from the non-spiritual? In each case, it violates the principle of cause and effect. But Job is the one book of the Bible that really gives us an expanded view on the second origin of life. And it provides us with an instruction manual. Because Genesis 1 closes off with God giving a command to Adam and Eve and all of humanity. I'm putting you in charge of the resources of the entire planet to manage it for the benefit of all life. But notice, he never told them how. You can imagine Adam and Eve saying, oh, great command, what do we do? Well, God didn't have to bring that out. 
because after all in the book of Job you've got four consecutive chapters that give you a detailed instruction on how to manage the resources of the whole planet for the benefit of all life. Let me give you a current modern-day example and basically what we're discovering in looking at the fossil record and the history of the solar system we human beings are living at the most benign time in the history of our Earth. At no other time in Earth's history have we had such a wonderful climate, a wonderful environment in which to enjoy. And basically the command that starts in Job 37 is God speaking and saying, I gave you this optimal environment. Keep it that way. And so what he asks us to do, in particular starting in chapter 37, is I gave you optimal precipitation. I think living here in Seattle you can all appreciate the optimal precipitation <laughs> that you receive. <laughs> hey, I grew up in Vancouver which is even wetter. Um, but in Job it talks about how God blessed humanity with three different kinds of frozen precipitation. You know, the hail, uh, the snow, and the frost, and then three different kinds of liquid precipitation, uh, the mist, the dew, and the rain. And then he says, watch the rainfall patterns. If you disturb them, bring them back. Well, today a big issue is global warming. And a message from the book of Job in terms of global warming that uh, let's manage the precipitation factors. That's the most important thing we can do in managing the planet. And here's the bottom line. If we rectify the precipitation that we've disturbed, have disturbed, that will go a long ways to resolving global warming. Let me give you an example. We humans in 2,000 years have made the Sahara Desert ten times bigger than it is. Today the Sahara Desert is bigger than the continent of Australia. It wasn't always that way. In the days of the Roman Empire, what is now the Sahara Desert was the breadbasket for the Roman Empire. It was a granary that fed the entire Roman Empire. The Gobi Desert is now four times bigger than it was 2,000 years ago. Well, here's a radical idea. How about if we were to give the sub-Saharan people all the oil they want free of charge on one condition they work with us to replant the Sahara Desert? Because that's what happened. People stripped the edges of the desert of vegetation for cooking fuel, and in the last, oh, in the 100 years, the Sahara Desert moved south by six miles a year. Well, we can reverse that. And the Israelis have shown us how we can transform a desert back into a forest in less than a generation. So what took 2,000 years can be reversed fairly quickly. Now, there's a lesson in all of this. Namely, that God has designed his creation and the animals and the plants on our planet in such a way that whenever we face an ecological crisis, we know that God in advance has provided us with a solution that is simultaneously optimally ethical and optimally economic. So for example, if we were to replant the Sahara Desert, that would provide an economic benefit for the Africans, it would provide a food supply literally for the whole world, uh, and it would be soaking up huge quantities of greenhouse gases. So it's a win-win-win. And what I do in going through the book of Job is just show you example after example that when we face these kinds of crises, and we're really facing them today. For thousands of years, humanity was doing all right, but now we seem to be really disturbing the environment. But in advance, he's provided us with solutions that are optimally economic and optimally ethical. 
which means when a politician tells you that you have to make draconian economic sacrifices to do the right thing environmentally, you know you got the wrong solution. Look for a different solution where you actually get an economic benefit at the same time uh, it's the ethical right thing to do. So for example, we have mentioned, by the way, everything in the book of Job, it's there for a reason. You know, I've pondered, why is the ostrich mentioned in the book of Job? It's there for a very good reason, because we're abusing the purpose that God gave us a cow. You know, God gave us a cow because he designed the cow in such a way that when bonds to a human being, it enjoys doing heavy labor for its human owner. That's not true of my sons, but it is true of a cow that it enjoys doing heavy labor. But today we use it predominantly as a meat source. And this may come as news to you, but the primary human contribution to global warming are the greenhouse gases emitted by our cows, way more than any of our, all of our fossil fuel burning combined. So if we were to trade our dependence on beef uh, to a different form of meat, and that's the, where the ostrich is mentioned. Ostrich provides you with a red meat that's extremely low in cholesterol and saturated fat. And if we were to uh, breed it like we do the cows, the meat would be about one-fifth the price of beef. And it would take only 10% of the pasture land that beef takes. And that's the number two contributor of human global warming is forests we've cut down to make room for the pasture lands for our cows. So once again, God has designed his creation so that the most ethical solution is identical to the most economic solution. And the book of Job gives us keys. But let me spend some time on the main theme of the creation accounts in the book of Job, and that refers to soulish life, these amazing creatures that God endows with mind, will, and emotions. Predominantly includes all the birds and mammals and includes just a few species of the higher reptiles. A few reptiles actually do care for their young. And so this goes back to creation day five, where the text talks about God creating the birds and also creating the sea mammals. And he uses the word bara to create something brand new that never existed before. Then the sixth day, it jumps ahead to three specialized kinds of land mammals that God created. And on day six, is talking about these three categories of land mammals that play the most important role in launching and sustaining civilization. And the message you see in Job is, there is no possibility for human civilization without these animals. And we often think we did it ourselves. Well, the truth is, just look at Australia, North America, and South America. They lack the critical birds and mammals that are talked about in the book of Job. And notice the people living there never got past the Stone Age. They lack the very animals that Job talks about. And in Genesis 1, it speaks about three different categories, namely the short-legged ones. These would be the rodents. You say, what do we need rodents for? Well, the thing about rodents is they're warm-blooded mammals, high body temperature with small bodies. The only way they can keep warm in a place like Seattle is grow lots of fur. And so they're by far the most efficient fur producers of any creatures on the planet, and they were immediately exploited by the earliest humans for clothing. It's quite easy to make clothing out of rodent fur. Just sew them together and make whatever you want. And the nice thing about rodents, they like hanging around people, and they don't mind being jammed together with thousands of their friends. So they're relatively cheap to feed, you don't need a lot of area, and they are great for making clothes. Incidentally, what I write about in this book is that these creatures are designed not only to serve humanity in launching civilization, 
are simultaneously observed to serve humanity at the end of civilization. Today, we don't need these rodents for furs. But one of the things we discovered is, in many respects, they have DNA identical to human beings. Now, if you're an evolutionist, you'd have to say we're descended from the mice and the rats, and maybe some of you women think that's true of the men in your family. Uh, but the truth is, we're nothing like mice and rats physically. But God gave them identical DNA in many critical areas, especially the DNA that governs the chemical pathways for brain function and memory. And today, we're able to use these creatures for medical advance. And there really is no better mammal for medical experimentation than mice and rats, again, because they like humans. In fact, you can pick up by hand uh, a mice or a rat that has never had, doesn't even know you. It'll accept that. And again, they don't mind living in a small room with 10,000 of their buddies. And they got a relatively rapid uh, generation time of just a few months. And so you can actually study several generations in a short period of time. And literally, they've been responsible for more medical advances than any other set of species of life. Well, Genesis 1 goes on to talk about two different kinds of long-legged land mammals, those that are easy to tame, contrasted with those that are difficult to tame. And the book of Job, it really lays that out, how God gave us herbivores and carnivores. Herbivores are easy to tame. In fact, some of them you can tame within a few minutes. Uh, and they make excellent agricultural animals. But they do not make good household pets. Try bringing a cow into your living room and see what will happen. You'll quickly discover you cannot housebreak a herbivore. And they need to eat all day and defecate all day. And they emit noxious fumes. So the wonderful thing about the carnivores is that they can consume all of their caloric needs in about two minutes a day, and they love to entertain people. And so they're capable of very strong emotional bonds, but they are difficult to tame. I mean, if you're trying to tame an adult lion, it's going to take you a couple of years. A cub is a lot easier, but an adult lion is going to take you a couple of years. But if you do tame a lion, it's capable of forming one of the strongest emotional bonds with human beings, and they just love being around uh, humans. There's a number of uh, <coughs> video clips that, that prove that on uh, YouTube. Now, Job 38 and 39 expands upon the message that God created these creatures specifically to serve and please us, each in their own distinct way. In other words, every single species is designed to either serve or please us in a different manner. And the challenge to atheism is that these creatures had all these features before we human beings even existed. You can't say they adapted to us because they had all this before we even show up on the scene. They were designed in advance to serve and please human beings. And this provides a powerful challenge to Darwin's Descent of Man hypothesis. And what he wrote in Descent of Man is that the differences between human and non-human minds is one of degree and not of kind. So he says, yeah, we're simply a little bit smarter, but not in any distinct way. And as proof for that, he said there is a much wider interval in mental power between one of the lowest fishes and one of the higher apes than there is between an ape and a man. But here's what Darwin overlooked. From a biblical perspective, the fish has no mind at all. So you're comparing a zero mind with the mind of an ape and the being more than zero compared to a man. Of course, there's a greater difference between a fish and an ape than an ape and a man if all you're looking at is the properties of the mind. Now, if he's looking at the properties of the spirit, 
there the ape would have a zero spiritual capacity. But there was a paper that came out in 2009, which kind of launched things. In fact, uh, it was two biologists at uh, UCLA who said the biologists have tended to assume that species with shared ancestry will have similar cognitive abilities. And so the presumption going all the way back to Darwin is that our closest mental relative would be the chimpanzee. But it was these two biologists at UCLA that determined that the raven far surpasses the chimpanzee in intellectual capability, which means, according to Darwin, we'd have to be descended from ravens, not from chimpanzees or a common ancestor with chimpanzees. What they discovered is that ravens, for example, can recover a tool to get a completely different tool to get a food treat without any human training. A chimpanzee can't do that. Moreover, ravens love to solve puzzles and they love to pick locks, but they're actually better at it when they're being observed by a human being. So when there's no human around, they really don't show off. But if there's a human watching them, they love to prove to you how smart they are, which is something you don't see uh, from the chimpanzees. But also another group of researchers, and this one is uh, combined from UCLA and UC San Diego, wrote a paper with the title, Darwin's Mistake. Because Darwin presumed that we have no distinct symbol recognition compared to the animals. And they said, on the contrary, there's a significant discontinuity, a huge discontinuity in the degree to which humans and non-human animals are able to approximate the higher order systematic relational capabilities of a physical symbol system. I guess they got to write this way to get published. Uh, but what it really boils down to is this. No animal, no non-human animal, can read even the first page of the first fun with Dick and Jane Reader. You know, little children can do that. There's no animal can do that, no matter how much you train them. Also, no matter how much you train animals, they can't figure out what these symbols mean or be able to react appropriately to these symbols. And so what these three authors conclude in their paper, they say, we show the symbol relational discontinuity pervades nearly every domain of cognition, which means that we humans really must be a separate creation independent of the higher animals. And today, YouTube has become a research database. And there was actually a professor at UC San Diego who assigned his graduate students to look at all the YouTube video clips of animals, uh, particularly the higher animals. And the star was this little creature here called a snowball. And uh, Snowball has the amazing ability of being able to dance to music. When the researchers saw this, they said, there must be a human behind the scene that's giving it cues. And so they actually traveled all the way to Indiana with a film crew to independently research the capabilities of this bird. And I've actually got a one-minute video clip here that shows you what Snowball is able to do. So let me pull this off here, and here we go.
Well, that snowball and what the researchers did is they sped the music up and slowed the music down. They discovered no matter how fast or slow they ran the music, Snowball would keep a beat, right in tune with the music. And then what they discovered is that uh, this bird was once owned by a teenage girl who was a Backstreet Boys fan. <laughs> and this was her favorite song, because uh, he only does this with the Backstreet Boys. Uh, but what they're able to demonstrate is that this animal, because of its very strong bond with this teenage girl, uh, was able to dance to the music at that level. And they also went into the field and did experiments with wild parrots. And they discovered that wild parrots will not dance to a beat even to their own courtship songs. So where one is doing a courtship song, there will be no dancing. They only dance to music when they're bonded to a human being. Now the important thing here is it really shows that these animals will do things with us that they will not do with one another. And there really is something about that bond. Now I got to see this as a teenager when I had a pet parrot. His name was Pedro. And uh, you know he would hop on my shoulder every morning and check my face to see if there were any whiskers I missed and he would clean that up for me. Uh, and he also discovered that I didn't like him spotting up my shirts and so he potty trained himself. I didn't train him but what he would do is tug on my earlobe and that would tell me he needed to go. I'd put him on one of his trees and then he'd hop back on my shoulder. I bought a shirt. But the thing that uh, my parents noticed is that he loved the Brandenburg Third Concerto and he would dance just like Snowball would dance to the Brandenburg Concerto. And he loved the other concertos too, but that was his favorite. And then when my sisters would play their certain brand of rock music, he would throw a tantrum and screech and shout until they turned it off. <laughs> now, here's what's really going on, and this has been confirmed by researchers at UC San Diego. It's the human to whom they're bonded that makes all the difference. That bird was bonded to me, and it figured out what my favorite music was, and would, you know, express that. It was not bonded to my sisters, and so what we need to realize is that it's not that, uh, you know, uh, uh, cockatoos like the Backstreet Boys and parrots like uh, Bach, and that's not it at all. They will always pick the favorite music of the person they're most strongly bonded to. But I'll tell you what really annoyed my parents most of all is that we would be playing a bridge, and every time I would win the hand, uh, Pedro would do a little dance on my shoulder and then do kind of a little victory uh, song. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents comment is bad enough to lose to her son at bridge but his bird gloats so. <laughs> and then as we move into Job 38 and 39 you notice that there's 10 animals that are mentioned I mean you've all heard of uh, you know the top 10 list you actually get a top 10 list in the book of Job and I notice in reading the commentaries nobody really picks up on this why these 10 animals well, let me show you the ten that are mentioned. It begins with the lion, then the raven, the goat, the deer, the donkey, the ox, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, and the eagle. And then explains how each one of these creatures has been designed by God to play a critical role in relating to human beings and to helping launch and sustain human civilization. So in my book, I describe what that relationship is, how it is different at the beginning of human civilization, and how it serves a very different need at the end of civilization. Again, this defies any evolutionary explanation. 
why would these creatures be designed to serve two completely different purposes at two different times as they relate to human beings? But indeed, we see that that is, in, that is the case. I haven't got time to take you through this, but let me mention two of these creatures, and that would be the donkey and the horse. And the reason why I picked this out is evolutionists claim that the donkey and the horse have a very recent common ancestor. And that's because of how physically close their features are. In fact, their features are so physically close that if you force a donkey to mate with a horse, you will get a mule. It doesn't happen in the wild, but if you force it, you can do that because of how physically close they are to one another. But what the book of Job brings out is not their physical similarities, but how radically different their characteristics of their soulishness in terms of the relationship to human beings. With respect to the donkey, it makes the point that if you lose your donkey, it is able to revert back to wild living instantly. So it says, don't worry about your donkey, it'll take care of itself. And when you find your donkey, say, one or two months later, it'll immediately bond back to you and become domesticated. That's not true of the horse. If you've got a domesticated horse and somehow that horse gets loose from you, it's going to have a hard time surviving in the wild. Usually they don't make it. And if they do make it, you're not going to be able to rebond with it. It becomes permanently feral. That's not true of the donkey. The other thing about the donkey is it's strongly motivated to keep you away from danger. So the donkey is sensitive to risks that may be ahead of you. So if you're riding a donkey down the Grand Canyon, it's going to make sure that you're not going to be in any danger. It's extremely sure-footed and will do everything it can to make sure that you don't fall into any risk or danger which is why the donkey is useless as a battle animal. It's not going to take you into battle. Once it sees those arrows coming its way, it's going to head in the opposite direction because <laughs> its motivation is to keep you safe. But, you know, when we look at the horse, the horse is really the ideal transportation animal. You know, when you ride a donkey and you're six feet tall, your feet are going to drag on the ground. But if you ride a camel, you're going to be so high above the ground that if you fall off the camel, you're going to hurt yourself. And by the way, it's not exactly a stable ride on a camel. But notice that the horse is designed to be, provide a nice stable mount. It's just the right height, and it's able to take you over large distances. And like the human being, it is a very efficient perspiration system. So it has basically the same kind of cooling system that we humans have, which means it can go where we go. And when we put on clothes, you can put on clothes on a horse. And so horses are very accepting of uh, their human owners putting clothing on them. They're extremely loyal and obedient and will even sacrifice its health and its life to protect its human owner. And it'll take you anywhere you want to go, including into battle. So unlike the donkey, it doesn't mind taking great risks on behalf of its human owner. On the other hand, it will only do it if it's bonded to a human being. You won't see a horse charging into battle by itself. If it's got a human mount on it, then it will go into battle. It will go anywhere you want. Well, my point is this. You really can't find two creatures, the donkey and the horse, that relate to human beings as differently as they do. And how can this be the property of any natural evolutionary descent? Look how radically different the properties of the mind are. And it was Darwin that said at first that his model would fail if the properties of the mind are not consistent with the properties of the physical morphology of the creature. And that is indeed a profound challenge to the evolutionary paradigm. The UCLA neuroscientist said at first, this is Darwin's big mistake. 
and presuming that these would be linked. They're not linked. Now, what I think is most significant about these soulish creatures is how God designed them to teach us important lessons about ourselves and about God. Back in chapter 12, he says, Ask the animals, a reference to the mammals, and they will teach you, or the birds of the air, and they will tell you. And, you know, I talk a lot in the book about all the different lessons that these animals can teach us about ourselves and about God. But here are just a few to give you just some highlights here. What are some of these lessons that these creatures can teach us? Well, one is that it takes a higher being to tame these creatures. Notice they don't tame one another. It takes us, a higher life form, to come into the picture and tame these creatures so they can serve us and please us. Well, likewise, in there is a lesson that for us to be tamed, it takes a higher being. God can tame us, and we can tame these creatures. So as we learn how we're able to interact with these creatures to tame them, that makes us appreciate that we too need a higher being to be tamed. In fact, that's the message of Job 38 all the way to 42, is that God gave us these creatures and we can tame them all, but then God steps in in chapter 41 and 42 of Job and says to Job and his friends, you know, there's one creature you can't tame. The one creature you can't tame is a proud human heart. Only I can bring humility to a proud human heart. You are not able to do that, and he says, if you want to test me on this, try it. Do what you can. Run into an arrogant, prideful person and see how far you get. So, but also we need to appreciate as they were created to please us, so also we were created to serve and please God. You know, God gave a powerful motivation to these creatures to relate to us and serve and please us. In fact, I tell a story in the book of one time where I went into the wilds of Canada in a place where park rangers told me humans hadn't been in 50 years. I purposely went all by myself, set up a little pup tent, and I noticed within a few hours I had this ring of these creatures watching me from about 40, 50, 30 feet away. When I woke up in the morning, many of them were inside my tent. So, and they let me touch them. Now what that is showing is what happens to these creatures when they're not being exposed to the abuse of human evil and sin. When you see that, you can see how powerfully motivated they are to approach us and relate to us and form a bond uh, with us. But it's our sin that causes these creatures to run away from us. So as sin damages our relationships with these animals, so also it causes us to run away from God. Within each one of us is a powerful motivation to reach out to God and to serve and please Him. It's in the way is our sin and evil our propensity to rebel and go our own way. And then we have the two long chapters in chapter 40 and 41 about the behemoth and the Leviathan. And the message that God is bringing, keep in mind the context of chapter 38 all the way through to 42 is on these soulish animals. Because people have debated who's the Leviathan, uh, who's the uh, behemoth. And some have speculated that it might be a reference to dinosaurs, but dinosaurs are not nephesh creatures. Uh, they're not like the birds and mammals where they have this quality of mind, will, and emotions and a capacity to nurture their young and relate to human beings. But it is referring to two soulish animals that are the most difficult to tame of all. And when you read the description in detail, you recognize it's a reference to the hippopotamus and to the crocodile. 
You can tame a hippopotamus, but only if you separate the baby hippopotamus from its mother, isolate it, and spend an hour a day with that creature until it grows up. And uh, then it will bond with you. Uh, with a crocodile, uh, you have to raise it from the time it is hatched, again, get it separated up crocodiles, and you've got to spend an hour a day. And by the way, if you miss a day, you're in trouble. It's got to be every day that you spend time with that creature. So extremely difficult uh, to uh, tame. But then God uses that as an analogy. He says, you think it's difficult to tame a crocodile? It's nothing compared to trying to uh, tame a proud, humble, or, or bring humility to a proud human being. And again, he steps in and says, I'm the only one that can do that. And basically makes the point to Job. Job, you're my servant. You recognize that humility can only come from me, and you came to me and got that. That's not true of your friends. And I want you to pray for your three friends that they would submit and gain humility from me. And to their credit, that's exactly what his three friends did. Uh, they received the prayers of a Job, the humble servant of God. And as you read through the entire Old Testament, it refers to Job as one of the three wisest, most humble men that ever lived in the Old Testament era. He's right up there with Noah and Daniel. Those are the three, uh, Daniel and, uh, and Noah. And basically, the book of Job ends with an appeal to all of us. As Job came to God for the humility that he needs to appropriately serve and please him, he's asking us, will we do the same thing? Will we let God humble and teach us? So I just want to leave you with that. All of us have our struggles with pride. You may have been a follower of Jesus Christ for 20 years, but I guarantee there'll be those moments when you fall prey to pride. And that's just a time to stop yourself and say, God, I need you to humble my heart. And if you pray that way, he's got an amazing capacity to answer that prayer. Maybe not in ways that you might enjoy, but in ways that will really benefit you long term. So please, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, I ask you to look inside and see where pride exists and recognize you need help from beyond to bring humility to do what you're not able to do for yourself. So thank you.